0: One, two, three,
1: four. You are listening to Skylet the skylight books podcast skylight books is a general interest bookstore in the los Feliz neighborhood in los angeles you can shop with us from 10 a.m to 10 p.m or visit us online 24 7 at skylightbooks.com follow along at skylight books instagram and twitter you can subscribe to the podcast on podbean itunes and spotify thank you for listening and now on to the episode Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm excited to welcome Joey Davido um, to read from the, to read from a new book, An Unofficial Marriage. She'll be in conversation with Esmeralda Santiago. Santiago. Before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that. Skylight Books podcast, uh, or Skylight Books offers curbside pickup right now, and online ordering, but we're also open right now, so please come on by and make sure to stay updated on our uh, store's policies. Joey Davido is the author of a memoir, *Marked for Life*, and co-editor with Esmeralda Santiago of two anthologies, *Last Mommies* and *Last Christmas*, both vintage. She was co-founder of LA Weekly and founder of LA Style and C magazines. She lives in Rome where she leads creative writing workshops and is a freelance book editor. Today, Joey will be in conversation with Esmeralda Santiago who is the author of the memoirs When I was Puerto Rican, Almost a Woman, which she adapted into Peabody award-winning film for PBS, PBS's masterpiece theater and the Turkish lover, the novel America's Dream and her most recent novel, Dora. Hi, Joey and Esmeralda, it's so great to have you in here today.
0: Thank you, really happy to
1: be here. No, I'm sorry, sorry for the, sorry for, I, I tried to fix it, but sorry for the mispronunciation of your name earlier, um, but it's, it's uh, this I'm excited for this episode. This would be a fun one to listen to. You two have such a great history together.
0: Well, we're, we're very happy to be able to uh, share this book with your listeners. Uh, Joey and I have known each other for many years, and uh it's been just great to to watch the evolution of this book so i'm so excited to talk about it
1: so exciting i'm excited to listen to it um so joe you have a reading for us
2: yes i'm going to read you just the very beginning of the book the first couple of pages so you'll see how it starts and we start off in saint petersburg russia in 1843 Winter falls on St. Petersburg like a white curtain. One day, an ice flow appears on the Neva. The waters roil and a mist arises, hovering over the city. The next morning, the river is firmly frozen with ice so thick the wooden bridges are removed and carriages roll across wherever they like. Overnight, the colors all disappear, obliterated by the winter snows, leaving only the wind moaning at the edges of the windows. Everywhere there is snow. It covers the houses, the streets, the ice on the frozen canals is blanketed in powdery white. Day and night snow falls while the wind wailing down the wide boulevards sweeps it into hills and valleys. In early November, St. Petersburg is cold harsh and glorious. But in the uppermost gallery of the Imperial Theater, high above the stage, the heat rising from thousands of enraptured bodies renders the air stifling. Here, where the environs are unsuitable for ladies, only men are permitted. They roost in narrow rows, mercilessly squeezed onto hard wooden benches delighted to, to be there. They understand not a word being sung and have only the vaguest notion of what sort of entertainment an opera is meant to be. But every perch is enthusiastically occupied. Even Sergeyevich Turgenev, unaccustomed to such claustrophobic conditions is much too expensively dressed for such a cheap seat. His long legs are bent at an excruciating angle, knees to chest, and he hunches his broad shoulders to avoid the men on either side of him. When he arrived, he found the situation so untenable, he thought of escaping at the first interval. But then she appeared on stage, a tiny figure so far below him that through his opera glasses, she appears both real and imaginary. Her voice her voice is so close beside him, she might be singing softly into his ears. A voice so beautiful, he wants to die listening to it. The sound that pours so smoothly into his ears flows down through his body, reverberating in his chest and belly, pulsating between his legs. And he stays, although he is unable even to adjust his feet without treading on his neighbor. At the final curtain, he scans row upon row of red and gold boxes, watching the aristocrats, the intelligentsia, the merchants, even the wealthy Jews of St. Petersburg. The audience is in a frenzy. Women dressed in white gowns and covered in gems frantically tap gloved hands against folded fans, and men in a splendor of uniforms applaud wildly young dandies in the stalls throw their top hats into the air, calling Vyardo, Viado. the curtains part and she steps into the spotlight, Pauline Vyardo Garcia, so small, yet so majestic, sings into a deep curtsy, lifts her head and crosses her hands over her chest. Through his opera glasses he can see that her strange dark face is covered with bewildered tears and he weeps with her. Then she is gone and the enormous chandelier is lit illuminating the hall. High above in the gallery men climb over Ivan's knees thrust elbows into his back as they push and shove one another toward the interminable stairway that leads down to the street. For three quarters of an hour, he is unable to move, oblivious to the rough valenkies that trample his calfskin boots. He imagines her reclining in a dressing room filled with flowers, a gossamer robe revealing the contours of her body, soft black hair flowing over her shoulders until an old usher leans over him, breath sour with the remnants of cabbage and onions. Ivan Sergeyevich raises damp eyes, and hurries off.
0: Oh, what a marvelous, what a marvelous beginning! You tell us so much, and yet we We just we're so curious. We just want to know what happens next. Uh, Joey, I know that um, this, this is a true story, based on a true story. That's right. Um, and so I would like to know first of all. When did you find this story? Is it something that you knew? I know that you have a history as an opera singer. Did you always know about this romance between these two famous people? Um, or was it something that came to you? And how, how did this, uh, how did it come about? How did you find it?
2: Well, I mean, actually, I had no idea about this romance. I was thrilled when I found it. I was looking for a subject for my next book. And I had this ridiculous idea that it would be easier to write a historical novel than to start from scratch. I had just written a short novella where I made everything up and I knew how hard it was to get a plot going and to get the tension going. And I thought, I'll just tell a true story, novelize it, fictionalize it, and I'll already have the plot. But that's not so easy (laughs) (laughs) because you have to know what to leave out. You know, um, an interesting novel is like true life with the boring parts taken out. So I had to figure out what the boring parts were. And um, actually, I had to do all the same kind of work. But I also had to do a huge amount of research. So while I was looking for my next book, I decided I'll go look in the biography section of the library. And I was in Los Angeles. So I went to the Los Angeles Public Library, which is just glorious, big building downtown, the main one. And I went through all of the biographies. I started with the A's and finally I was desperate. I was at the letter V because it goes in alphabetical order when I pulled down Pauline Biodo. So I knew she was an opera singer. And I thought, well, I could relate to this. I can tell people what it's really like to be an opera singer because I was one. And so I took the book back to where I was staying and I started to read it. And of course, the first thing I discovered is Ivan Turgenev who I knew as a little girl, even, because my parents were from Russian heritage or Eastern European heritage. And so they had all these books in the library. We grew up with Turgenev and Tolstoy and Gogol and um, Dostoevsky, And so I already loved even Turgenev. <laughs> and when I read this story, I was so overcome. I just got very, very excited. And then I started to do the research, which took me some years. Yeah. And it was really exciting when I would find something because I, when I found that some wonderful person many years ago had collected the existing letters between Ivan and Pauline, mostly from Ivan to Pauline, not the other way. And I got, and I found the book, you know, I kept, I had to like look and look as it was many years out of print and stuff. And I found the book and I had it in my hands and I was actually reading the words that he wrote to her in French. Wow. It's like, I was so excited. It was like he was in the room with me. And, And I had to do a lot more research. I had to travel. I wanted to see the places where they were and get to know them and walk on the streets where they walked, which also gave me a big thrill. So little by little over the course of reading all these letters and reading every biography, not just of them, because there are lots of biographies of Turgenev as you can imagine, but of everybody in their circle I kind of felt like after a while, I kind of got them. yeah. And they became real people to me. And I I would sit in my same place where I wrote every day. And I would just conjure up Ivan Turgenev. And he would come and sit on the chair opposite me and, you know, pull up the trouser legs so he wouldn't crease them and sit down and say, well. (laughs) (laughs) What shall I tell you? (laughs) Responsibility, since I was now in love with them. Yes. And also I had huge respect because Turgenev was such an extraordinary writer and she was the most famous opera singer in her life during her lifetime and could do amazing, incredibly superhuman things. I wanted to be true to them. Yes. So that was the heavy burden that I carried. You don't have to worry about that when you're working with uh, fictional characters that you just made out of whole cloth. Right.
0: Yeah, no, I, I remember um, because we've known each other uh, for a while, and I remember the process. <laughs> we went, and, and we talked a lot because we both were sort of in love with Ivan Ivantur, <laughs> although of course you were much more in love with him than I was because you knew him better. Um, and so these these letters that you that you were um, that you were reading were in French, and you you're trilingual or quadrilingual at this point because you also know. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I'm bilingual, but I can read French and some other languages. I just wouldn't dare try to speak them right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I remember um, the, it, it is just so exciting for me as, um, as a reader and as somebody who loves artists of all stripes. When you um, talked about this, this story, this very romantic filled with, with drama and, and historical uh, events that took place around the time that they knew one another. Um, A lot of people, um, many of your readers will, will recognize a lot of names of people that were part of that period. So tell us a little bit about that milieu that, that they moved in and what that was like. uh, And how do you, how do you, How did you place them within those groupings?
2: Well, they uh, were really at the center of the uh, kind of cultural revolution that was taking place at that time. Um, They suffered through the cholera epidemic in Paris, they suffered through the uprising in Paris, they suffered through the Franco-Prussian War, they suffered through the um, oppression of liberal-minded people who wanted to free the serfs in Russia, Turgenev was put under house arrest for many years. So they went through quite a lot, but at that time, the railroad had just come, become something. So you could actually take a train, you know, from Paris to Berlin to Prague. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything at that time because now if you lived in Prague you just didn't hear singers from Prague or just meet writers from Prague. Mm -hmm. All over Europe was now accessible to you and Pauline traveled a huge amount. Uh, She sang all over Europe, she sang uh, in Russia quite a bit, she sang in in, uh, England quite a lot, in London, So that changed Europe fundamentally so that Turgenev who might have another period been extremely famous in Russia was now famous all over the place. And he was famous in in England and he was even famous in America. So because of that, they got to um, form sort of a huge circle of people uh, who they might never have met, for example, Turgenev knew Dickens. Dickens came to hear uh, Pauline sing. Uh, Pauline was very close, of course, to Chopin, who was Polish, but now he was living in France, right? Most of his life. So uh, um, as you read through the book, all these names will pop up. The interesting thing about this book, which with a tension that pervades the whole story and which um, attracted me to it so strongly was that when Pauline met, Ivan Turgenev. She was a very young woman in her early 20s, married to a man who was old enough to be her father. Mm -hmm. He was also a lovely man in many ways. He was completely devoted to her. He managed her career. She couldn't really have gotten along without him. He had been the director, the artistic director of the, uh, called the Theater Italien in Paris, which was one of the two main opera houses. Mm -hmm. And he originally hired her there before he fell in love with her. Her best friend was Georges Saint, the, um, the writer. And Georges told her to marry Louis Viardot, who was her husband, because she said, you know, your mother's not going to travel with you much longer and you need someone to protect you. And the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be if you were to fall in love.
0: Mm.
2: Because if you're an artist, you better not care about anything else.
0: Yeah, George says that while she's
2: living with Chopin, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, but she, she actually had a tumultuous relationship with him because she would throw him out. You know, she wrote, George Sain wrote from after dinner until dawn. Uh, and nothing stopped her or interfered with her, including Chopin. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so Pauline marries this guy who's actually way too old for her was a very old confirmed bachelor who lived with his mother and his two sisters. So imagine this guy. And then she goes to St. Petersburg, already married, and she thinks she's perfectly happy. Yeah. She's never been in love. What does she know? She likes him. He's good to her. Mm-hmm. She has, even has a child with him, a little girl, who is, by the way, staying with Chopin and Jorsen while she's gallivanting all over Russia. And she meets this guy who's very handsome. And her age and he had seen had seen her in the scene that i just read to you and he literally fell in love with her through his opera glasses yeah. he never got over it from that very moment his whole life changed so he finds a way to meet her you know pulling strings finagling blah blah which he was kind of good at and then he kind of courts her and they're kind of on the same wavelength
0: yeah
2: Now she's stuck with this husband whom Turgenev has very cleverly befriended and vice versa husband's part. So for the rest of their lives they are stuck in a triangle which comes and goes and it pushes and pulls and she thinks she's going to go off with Turgena, but then she really doesn't, and then she can't bear it. And then he leaves and oh don't leave. And meanwhile, the husband is, you know, doing everything he can to kind of keep this under control because he doesn't want to lose his wife. Right. Even well, he knows what's going on. I mean, he's he a knows, smart
0: man. He understands.
2: He's, man. He's, and he also is smart enough to know she's never been in love with him.
0: Right. And he, I mean he's very aware the thing that, that one of the one of the endearing parts of, of your characterization of Louis Viardot is that he is completely, he does love her. He's in love with her, not just he, he her. Doesn't love her, he is in love with her and he yeah. admires her and he, and he does everything to encourage her and to, to her career, manages her career. And yet he's also, you know, with all this going on, he's aware that she is in love or kind of besotted with, Somebody who is besotted with her, who is a much more um, appropriate match, let's say, because they're closer in age. And how wonderful that he understands that. Um, and and you know, doesn't I mean in, in your in your in your um, telling of this story, we really understand. The emotions between these three very passionate people in different ways. Viardot appears like a more intellectual kind of more. Oh, but he's like a
2: penitent. <laughs> <it? laughs>
0: but he really, I mean, he feels it, uh, and it's and uh, yeah, and so it's it's such a wonderful it's a wonderful um, characterization of three of them that you you manage to make us feel for all of them and to really understand. And and what was that process like? I mean, when you're in love with Ivan Turgenev, how do you then make Louis Viardot
2: equally interesting and lovable? Well I had to get to know him. So I had to I had to read his letters, his letters he wrote a lot to Jorsin, he wrote a lot to Turgenev because they had, you know, he co-opted Turgenev. That's how he dealt with it. Yeah. And then he and Turgenev worked together to translate a lot of the great Russian writers into French, because otherwise they would never be known outside of Russia, mm. trains or no trains. So um, he kind of co-opted him, mm. and that was a very clever strategy in a lot of ways. And I think the two men were genuinely fond of each other on, another, on some weird level.
0: Right. Yeah, well so, they had a lot of they had a lot of things that they liked to do together. They were both they out there. Yeah. yeah,
2: they were yeah. both interested in literature. They um, and they were both very avid hunters. Right, and so they used to go hunting together. Um, and that was another bond that they had.
0: Yeah, yeah, two intellectuals out there in the woods, you know. Um, I, and, and, I, I've never done talk, it. I imagine but, you do a lot of talking.
2: talk about a lot of things, but they were careful not to talk too much about Pauline.
0: Exactly, but they—they they, there were two men dealing with manly things of the period that, right. that women were not participating in, and yet both of them in love with the same person. They were very. I, and this reminds me of one of the things that is so wonderful about your novel is your description of these places, particularly um, your descriptions of the outdoors and how how these characters interact with their environment wherever they might find themselves. Um, the, 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 the weather becomes a, a character in some of the scenes. I mean, just what you just read about this, icy cold environment and at the end you know you say but it's glorious there's something amazing about about this and and it kind of sets us up for this very difficult weather that these three people will be weathering for the next
2: weathering, yeah I mean me- uh, metaphorically as well as actually yeah. um, I was um inspired very much by Turgenev, because one of his great, great strengths was his descriptive ability. Mm-hmm. And the way he describes places, you know, you almost feel like I've been to the steps of Russia just from reading his books. Yeah, And so that inspired me to make that an important part of this book also. And so much of what he was experiencing in his life creeps into his literature, into his... And in fact, I actually quote his fiction, little bits and pieces throughout the story, because he kind of owns up to it. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a scene in the book where he's taking a walk with um, Pauline's husband and explaining, you know, something. And that scene is almost directly out of his um, best known play, A Month in the Country, where an, uh, an, uh, an older husband says, you know, do you love my wife in a way that would be difficult? To, to admit to her husband. Yeah. And I mean, well, there's no question. a
0: question. That's life. a very moving scene in your book. It is it's such a moving scene. Yeah. It's heartbreaking because you know, this dilemma, it's just like the dilemma that they're, the three of them are in, but that, but that Viardot as the older man and probably wiser in, in some ways, for him to, to articulate it is a very, it's just a wonderful, wonderful scene that, that uh, just, it just breaks your heart.
2: Um, doe breaks your heart, I think, a lot in this book. I mean, he broke mine throughout writing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, He's very noble. Yes, yes. Well, you know, there was a nobility to all of them, really. I mean, they all were, one of the things that when you read, when we're reading historical fiction is that we We're reading it in the 21st century and that we constantly have to remind ourselves that uh, things were not the same at that time. And that's the hard job bringing us into that period and into the behavior of these people that is so different from ours. So can you talk a little bit about how how difficult was that um, to, to do that?
2: I think that's the hardest thing that a historical novelist faces is that no matter how deeply you immerse yourself in the period, and I was just drowning myself in it, you can't escape the fact that you're not living then. You weren't brought up then, and that's not what you're going to see when you go out the door. So you, it's it's just a challenge, and you can't pretend that you're going to get it because you're never going to get it. So you're always gonna be bringing 21st century eyes into a 19th century book. And you just have to kind of give your readers a sense of what it was. So in this case, I have three different kinds of people. First, I have a Russian. And having grown up with Russians, I know that Russians are the most dramatic, (laughs) ridiculous people in the world. I mean things are either black or they're golden but there's nothing in between. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so that part I could absolutely get, you know. Then the other person is she's French but her family is Spanish. She was born in, she was born in Paris but her parents came over from Spain. And so she has that Spanish fire but she's an opera singer. I mean, we have to actually get up there and believe all this stuff about dying for love. And I mean, there's nothing subtle. I mean, this, the art form doesn't lend itself to any kind of subtlety. <laughs> so, you know, when she, she doesn't say, oh, I was very upset. She says, I felt like my arms and legs were broken. <laughs> <laughs> so I understood her from that point of view. The harder person was Louis Viardot. He was restrained. He's one of those intellectual Frenchmen. And if you've ever known any French people, you know him. You know, they haven't changed that much in a hundred years, you know. <laughs> they're very restrained. They're very thoughtful. You know, but his heart was good. Yeah. His heart was good. And even though, like any jealous man, he, you know, did a few passive aggressive things like throwing away letters that might have arrived from Ivan to Pauline. <laughs> but in the end. You know he resigned himself and he yeah. did it very gracefully and she didn't go anywhere yeah and it worked she saved his marriage
0: yeah it it's really not only did did um, she save their marriage but she you know they had several children together and, and 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 ivan for their entire lives he was part of their lives from the moment they meet he is like a a, a beloved welcome guest in their in their home
2: home. well in the beginning he was really a carriage follower he would just turn up whatever city she was in (laughs) Um, but eventually he became part of the family and at the very end of his life after they'd been through so much stuff a cholera epidemic the franco prussian war they were then they were living happily in Germany. And then when the franco prussian War came, they had to leave Germany and go to England. They didn't have any money and, you know, all this stuff. And finally, they get back to Paris. And at that point, they said, look, we're too old to play this anymore. They were, you know, in their forties, fifties. And so he moved into the top floor of their house in Paris. And he had an apartment up there. And that's where he lived for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just so modern. <laughs> At the same time, you're going like, are you kidding me? They, they people did that? It's really, it's more
2: George's son was considered outrageous.
0: Right, yeah, she was, I mean, yeah.
2: She so, was behind, she was like behind the scenes, you know, pushing and pulling and writing and, and telling, uh, pulling what to do, what not to do.
0: Right, right. Yeah, she. She was in many ways. She was, you know, she was very influential. I mean, her mother was very strict and kind of in a very different way from George Sand, who really kind of took her, uh, took Pauline under her wing and supported, encouraged her. And she was kind of a, the emotional support in some ways that in many her ways could yeah. provide. Um, but there was w- something really wonderful also about about this story, as you have written, and that is that we learn the physical demands of an opera uh, performer, and not only the training. So tell us a little bit. I mean, she did not, be, she did not begin as a nine-year-old um, you know, prodigy of singing. Uh, she was actually a musician. She was a pianist.
2: She was a brilliant musician. She was a composer. Many of her songs are now being discovered because now we finally admit that women were composers. And so a lot of her songs are now being recorded, she wrote some beautiful violin music for her son, Mm. who was a violinist, but she started out as a pianist, and she used to, her father was a great tenor, very famous tenor, and, um, and later in life he became a singing teacher, and she used to have to play for his students in his studio, so in a way she heard over and over and over again his lessons, how to sing. But she was going to be a pianist and she was extremely talented. She was a great pianist. And so her teacher at the end was Franz Liszt when she was a teenager, maybe 14. And um, her sister was one of the most famous opera singers who ever lived in addition to her. Her name was Maria Malibran, And Maria Malibran is like a mythic figure even to this very day. Um, She appears in a play by Terence McNally that was on Broadway less than a decade ago. So, when Maria Malibrand died at the age of 28, tragically, very tragically, her mother thought, well, maybe we're gonna need to have Pauline carry on the family legend. Uh, maybe she can't be a singer. And at that age, around 14, 15, maybe even 16, women's voices change like men's do. It's not as dramatic in the speaking voice sense, but the singing voice, you can tell whether it's gonna be or not be her mother said, well, let me hear you sing a few things. And Pauline said, I'm not a singer. And so (laughs) she said, okay, you just sing scales, okay? And she said, "Uh uh-oh, you know, close the piano. You're going to be a singer.
0: (laughs) So it was the mother who kind of um, just made that decision for her.
2: Made that decision. And uh, Pauline cried and cried for days. She didn't want to give up the piano.
0: Right. Yeah. And, she, and then
2: she had to make a debut in the shadow of her great sister.
0: Yeah, who had, who had died tragically and, and how radically, if we can say. Very
2: <laughs> radically, as you will see in the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what's so wonderful, also. I mean, I, I love about this book is that it's, it is really so this passion's burbling in every direction. All these people are, um, I mean, they're living their lives, right? in a very passionate and emotional way. And yet there's so much restraint. And one of the things that's wonderful about your writing is that you're able to bring all this, all this emotion, all this passion without it being melodramatic or purple prose. (laughs) I mean, it's very lyrical and and it's very literary. And and we really, um, we get it without, you know, hearing the the violins playing in the background when something sad happens. and uh, And this is about craft. This is about craft as a writer. So I would love to hear a little bit about um, you know, you begin as an opera singer and then you became an editor, and then you become a book writer. So so what was what is that that progression and how how it has evolved and, and helped in the process?
2: So I was a singer. That's all I ever wanted to do in my life. I heard my grandmother's recordings of, they were 78 RPMs, of the opera singers of her day, including Caruso, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just knew that's what I wanted to do, and I had to be able to do it, and it was very scary for me because you don't know until you're about 15 whether you're one of, you know, a million people who has this weird physical um, kind of um, birth defect that (laughs) means that you can sing. So for example, my vocal cords are the size of, of six foot tall man, right? Uh, it's like, it's almost like a birth defect. there's it's a strange thing that happens because what opera singers do is they sing in, um, over an entire orchestra. They have to be loud. Right. And in fact, when I was younger, maybe I still do it and I don't know it. But when I was younger, people used to tell me, Shh, Joey, don't talk so loud. And I didn't even think I was talking loud. <laughs> So, I was an opera singer, and, as like most opera singers, I wasn't making a lot of money on a regular basis. So, I would make money and I have a role and then nothing, and then I do a lot of auditions. I have another role. So, what was I doing in between to make money? Um, it, I had some friends who had a newspaper. I started hanging out there doing every kind of every kind of job at the newspaper. And then um, I moved to LA to study with this fabulous teacher and a friend of mine from New York came and he was starting a newspaper. He hired me because I needed a job. And I started to be an editor and I started to write and I just kind of learned on the job. And I had this really wonderful training because I was on deadline every single week. Hmm. And like most people on deadline, if it was due at 4 p.m. Thursday, I started writing at 2 p.m. Thursday. So I had no time to second guess myself and say, this is crap. Who's going to read this? I just had to get it done because the art department was waiting for the copy.
1: <laughs> and I
2: just had to write it. I used to put on headphones so that I couldn't hear anything going on around me and sit in, my, in this big off, you know, how it is in a newspaper office and type it up. And in those days, we didn't have a computer. And then I would say, now I'm going to run it through the typewriter again, because I would type it all over. And that's when I was doing my second draft cleanup. Wow. So because of that, I had some kind of an ability to write that other people might've had to struggle with if they hadn't had the advantage of those end, endless deadlines, 52 yeah. weeks the year. Yeah. So and that's how- like the, the terror of the deadline, which... <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to get it over with. I have two hours. <laughs> you know, you think about it. What am I going to write this week? You do the research, whatever reporting you have to do, and then you have like, now it's too late. You have to you have to do it. So I would, I never, you know, I, mean, I could have easily written three in a row, and then they weren't time tied, and yeah. then just them on. I didn't ever do that. <laughs> So what do you do now? I mean,
0: now that you're writing books, do you set deadlines for yourself? I mean, there might be some listeners who are, who are writers, who are um, trying to finish a book or maybe starting one or something. Uh, but so how is, how is writing to deadline as you did at the beginning of your career, how is, dif- how is it different from the way you do it now when you're writing a novel which for which, you know, maybe you don't have a deadline. Maybe you do. I don't
2: know. You know, a mutual friend of ours who happens to be a famous editor. <laughs> and I was telling her that I was going to write this book about Yvonne and stuff. And she said, well, what's your deadline? And I said, what do you mean? I don't have a deadline. I'm writing a book. And she said, "You better give yourself a deadline. You'll never write the book. Uh, so I have learned to give myself deadlines. But um, what has helped me so much when I was writing my Um, memoir, even way back then. And and now is that I have writers groups. And so and for my students, they have their lessons with me, they have their meetings with me. And you have to have something for that meeting. I never say I don't have anything this week, I almost never do. Mm -hmm. Because that's what keeps me writing is I know that I have to have this many words for this date. So that keeps me writing and then there is kind of a when you once you get rolling along there, it rolls as you know. you know now you kind of know once you know what the story is, it rolls. But figuring out what's the story is the hardest part. So the first question I ask myself is, what is this book about? yeah, so not what is the story, but what is it about? why are we why are you writing this book, and why would anybody read it?
1: Mm-hmm. So is it about
2: making Turgenev and Viarddo more famous a little bit mm-hmm. but what was the book about to me, what was in it that made me want to keep writing it was that I knew what Pauline was going through as a very modern woman. She was going through it in the 19th century and she was having to choose mm-hmm. between her personal life and her art. Right. And every woman has to choose between their personal life, their career, if it's, even if it's not their art. And art is so much more demanding than so many other life paths. Yeah. So that's what the book was about. And then or when I was writing my memoir, I had to decide, what is, why would anybody read my life? Who am I, right? Mm-hmm. But, but I said, so what, what if I got to share? So I thought, well, I'm writing about being different. And mm-hmm. I realized that every single person thinks there's something about them that if a lot of people found out about it, they wouldn't like them. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: mine was right on my face. I had a birthmark on my face. It was a very hard thing for me to deal with. So, but I wasn't just going to write to people who had birthmarks. I was going to write to anybody who felt that they were somehow different, mm. and how to overcome that. So, yeah,
0: and that's and 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 that it's really it's almost like, um, you know, we, we don't we can't imagine ourselves when we're different. We don't can't imagine the many ways of being different. <laughs> right, right. We, we're. You're yeah. different than anybody else's difference. Exactly. But for you to be a, a, a performer in which, you know, with, with a birthmark on your face, I mean, the, the, the courage that that requires is amazing. And well, a, lot that, yeah. a lot of
1: you, have Quite a lot of you.
0: I know, but also, I mean, I think that, but I think it's also, it it, it really speaks to what Pauline Viardot had to do also. She Over- had to make such so choices, overcome these incredible... Life-changing events in her life um, that required a decision, um, and she and she she tried really hard to make them. Uh, sometimes it was it didn't work. You know, she just kind of postponed it or delegated it.
2: She never gave less than a great great performance, no matter what was going on in her life.
0: Exactly, and so for her, and that was that was one of the uh, wonderful. Uh, aspects of what this book is about is about artistry and the commitment that, requi- that an requires. artist requires, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: and that not just not just opera singers, but also writers.
2: No, any, any any artist has to make sacrifices.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's such a wonderful book, Joey. I do hope that um, that our listeners will pick up an unofficial marriage and uh and we'll read it with the same uh careful attention that um that i have um because i think there's so many lessons in it um and so many of and and you didn't set out to give us lessons you You set out to tell us a story (laughs) (laughs) and it's a wonderful story It's a wonderful story that has been kind of obscured, um, except for perhaps scholars of of, uh, of that period and that kind of right. music.
2: Right, opera singers and Russian scholars.
0: Yes. So I really have to thank you for doing that um, because I, I had no idea about it. I'm really glad now that I know more about it and will continue to. Um, I mean, I had to mark up all these names. You know <laughs> to look up even more
2: about your song
0: if you want to
2: find out more, I hope it makes people want to read Dorgenyev.
0: Yes, yes.
2: To, uh, get those albums and listen to Pauline's music.
0: <laughs> that would be marvelous. just marvelous. So I believe um I believe that there's a question coming from the outside. is that? Yes, correct?
1: coming yes. from me, I'm back. Um, this one before that, I want to say this has been such a wonderful conversation to listen to. You two just, speak together so I mean there's just such a connection between you two that I think is just so you know palpable coming from um the recording um and I just think the listeners would want to thank you for sharing that with us um yeah I was one want- I wanted to know if there's any la- any things you would like to say to the independent bookstore community um during this time it's been a rough year so anything you would like to say to them
2: yeah. I say thank God for you. Every writer is so grateful to the independent bookstores, and we will try to we constantly try to do everything we can to support you. You know, um, without you, there really isn't any literature, and um, and so we're we're I'm very very proud and honored that I was able to do this for Skylight, uh, which is such a wonderful store in my former home of Los Angeles.
1: No, and thank you for uh, contacting us and wanting us to, we were so happy to do this. Um, and we just, and thank you for being a customer for so long <laughs> and being a valued one. As well, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I,
0: I, I would like to to thank all your listeners for uh, for joining us today. And thank you for organizing this uh, conversation between me and Joey David. Um, this, is the, this is one of the marvelous things that independent bookstores do, and that is to support and encourage authors, not just like the big bestsellers that are, you know, jetting around the world, but but authors who perhaps need a little bit more of a push, and one of the wonderful things about independent bookstores is that you know your stock, and you know your customers, and you're able to Um, You're amazing readers, you read everything, and you know how to recommend uh, our books that might be under the radar for for, uh, audiences. And so this is one of the Mm -hmm. things that makes uh, independent bookstores so important for us as readers and as writers, because you know what's out there um, Mm -hmm. beyond what's obvious. And so thank you for organizing these kinds of events for writers, and it's been just a blast to be able to talk to Joey about this wonderful book that, um, that I think really uh, should get a lot of attention.
2: Well, thank you, and thank you, Esmeralda. It's always a joy. I get so much energy from you, and you're such an incredible writer yourself and such a great historical writer that it's always a great pleasure to, to chat with you and talk about writing.
0: Thank you, darling.
1: Thank you to you both for for just letting us uh, hear you both talk, and this has been great. Uh, To my listeners, you can buy uh, Joey's book um, today at Skylight Books, or you can also order it online to pick up, so you have no excuse to not go read these books, Um, and yeah, thank you for this amazing episode, and thank you to my listeners for coming back. You have a great rest of your day.